0: Yes, it's us again here at the Story Hive in the autumn winter season of the Story Hive podcast. As you know, we are the home of amazing audio stories and can be found at www.thestoryhive.co.uk and of course you can follow us on social media as well if you like. We've always said that the short story is a kind of wonderful medium sometimes to shock you, to scare you, to make you laugh, etc. And the good news about all of these podcasts, these are quite short. So these are wonderful things just to fill in your day. If you feel a bit down, you want to be lifted. If you feel a bit up and you want to be taken down a bit, we've got a story for you. And in that spirit, let's get straight on with the first in today's three-story collection. And this one's from the Stormhouse, and it's a bit of a personal reality story, and it's called The Wall. It had all really started in February. I'd been throwing out some old boots, and I'd left them on top of the low wall outside my front door. It was bin day tomorrow, and I'd brought them down with the bin bags, all ready for collection. But when I came back from the shops an hour later, the boots had gone. Just for a passing moment, I briefly wondered who'd taken them. They were in really good condition, but the heel had always pinched me, so I'd had to get rid of them. And as I headed back inside... I heard the phone ringing, and in a mad dash I leapt up the stairs and into my normal working day, the boots and their new owner instantly slipping from my mind. That week passed slowly, until one evening a friend who worked for a large department store arrived and unexpectedly presented me with a new kettle. she had often commented about my kettle being a bit old-fashioned looking, which, strictly speaking, was exactly why i bought it had a sort of 50s retro look that reminded me of my mother's kettle at home, and in an odd way, the kitchen, the comforting feel to it. However, never one to look a gift horse in the mouth, I made the appropriate thank you noises and theatrically tugged the chrome and glass creation from its box. To celebrate my new high-tech acquisition, I insisted I christen it immediately. And so, still oozing unmissable satisfaction with her gift, I made a pot of tea. As I stirred the tea bags round, another thought struck me. What would I do with my old kettle? Its place had now been taken by my new fancy designer model. And sadly my kitchen isn't that big. And I looked around for a place to store the old kettle. and Then I immediately discounted the idea. I had shelves and cupboards already groaning with accumulated hidden clutter. But then Sheila called to me, complaining she was dying of thirst. Gathering up the cups and milk, I headed back into the lounge. That next morning, I yawned as I went down to collect my mail, and remembering the disappearing boots, I made a sudden decision not to store my old kettle, but to take it down with me and put it out on the wall. I set it gently down, but this time I attached a post-it note explaining that I'd received the gift of a new kettle and the fact that this one worked perfectly well and carefully I'd coiled the plug-lead round the handle, and checking the sky to make sure it didn't look like rain, I picked up my letters and went back upstairs. It took twenty minutes. Pausing from my work in the studio, I opened the blinds and peered down from the front. The kettle was gone. I felt a small glow of satisfaction... Perhaps the person who'd taken the boots had also seen the kettle and seeing the note had taken it away, happy at their good fortune, to now have replacement footwear and a new kettle. And the thought grew and I smiled as I ate my lunch. Here I was, directly helping people. My own little charitable foundation, in fact. And I began to reason it out. The things I'd left out would probably only appeal to people who really needed them. And in my own small way, I could make a tiny difference in someone's life. I've always been of the opinion, and my friends will confirm this, that a lot of the so-called mainstream charities or foundations seem to really be in the business of giving themselves cushy high-paid jobs. I remember once reading the RSPCA only actually used 10 pence in every pound to actually help animals, and the rest went on administration and directors' large salaries. The article even went on to point out the fact the chairman of a well-known housing charity had been given free permanent use of a 10-bedroom Hampstead mansion as part of his job. It didn't seem to make sense to me. As a result of this, I became personally particularly discerning about the charities I chose to donate to. And I'm always extra careful to establish that my donation will go as directly as possible to the intended recipient of the aid they advertise. Now you can add to this the fact that my local high street had recently become an almost never-ending row of very plush-looking charity shops with staff and advertising and posters in the window and this almost confirmed my worst suspicions. It wasn't that I resented charities or I didn't like them, for in this day and age of the terrible gap between rich and poor widening, they seem more needed than ever, sadly. It was just the glaring fact that any money they received seemed to be stretched a long way before it actually reached the people who really needed it. It made it Pretty difficult to know who to give money to. But I still thought you should. But for me, now, I had my wall. Many years ago, I'd heard an expression that had a profound effect on me. It really did. I'd been sitting at a bus stop to avoid a sudden downpour when I saw this old man begin moving a bicycle under the far end of the bus shelter. It was a pretty large bike, And for a moment he struggled with it. And I got up and I helped him manhandle it into the shelter it had been leaning on the outside of. He thanked me for my help. And before I could wave his thanks away, he pointed out to me that it wasn't actually his bike. But whosoever it was, wouldn't have to get onto a soaking wet saddle when they returned from wherever they were. He told me that if more people carried out simple acts of random kindness, the world would be a much better place. Acts of random kindness. It seems such a simple concept. And now I had the very vehicle to carry them out. The wall. If people saw something they needed, they thought they could simply use, they could just take it. An act of random kindness. And now... I'd found a simple and effective way to do it, and it quickly took a hold on me. Over that next month, I distributed four jumpers, were unwanted promotional gifts, one slightly faded denim jacket, a twin tape deck, a toasted sandwich maker, hardly used, and an old CD player. And add to that various miscellaneous T-shirts and Yeah, and a slightly burnt wok. But I'd particularly enjoyed the sandwich maker. I'd nipped up the shops for a paper, and as I turned back into my street, I saw the old man. He'd paused by my front wall. He picked up the sandwich maker, and I clearly saw him read my post-it note, explaining the fact I'd bought a new one. The post-it notes were important, I felt. They told whoever viewed the item a little of the history of each thing and clearly showed that it was either brand new, it was clean or hardly used and, importantly, in good working order, depending on the item. I didn't want anyone to think they were being offered some broken or tattered old piece of rubbish. A long buried memory of being a small boy surfaced and I recalled being sent to the school harvest festival service with tins of some obscure vegetable goo concoction my mother had picked up at the local supermarket. Evidently, everyone else's mother had been to the same supermarket and the display in front of the school stage looked as if it had simply been plucked from the shop and placed in front of the art display from 3C. Mr Hodges, our headmaster, bravely tried to ignore the small pyramid of tins with their identical labels and he seemed to make light of the coincidence but we saw the sour look on the face of the man representing the local old people's home and never before had the addition to the amen of pity the poor ever been quite so accurate and i watched as the old man read the sandwich maker's history "'he learned of its replacement with a newer model "'that did waffles as well. "'And he carefully examined it, "'opening it, closing it several times, "'and then he flipped through the little cooking booklet "'that had come with it, which I sellotaped to the side. "'I saw him nod appreciatively "'at some of the serving suggestions listed, "'and then he gently restuck it down. "'He looked thoughtful for a moment.' and I got the impression he was weighing up the use he could make of such an item. I stayed where I was at the top of the road, almost holding my breath, until after a brief look around, the old man smiled and tucked the toaster under his arm. And then slowly he walked off down the street, and it may have just been me, but I thought I detected a hint of a more confident air as he shuffled away, the acquisition of a free sandwich maker, an unexpected but very welcome addition to his day. And a stray thought crossed my mind. He probably wouldn't have been interested in the T-shirts or the wok, but it didn't matter, for now he had a sandwich maker, and the wall had done its job. That night as I ate, I suddenly thought of him using it, and then I thought of all the people and homes... My old things were bringing their benefits too, And I marvelled at such a very simple and practical solution to helping others. An act of random kindness. I'd seen it work. That afternoon, a man without a sandwich maker had acquired one. Possibly enriching his life just, just a little bit. Who knows? Maybe fed up with his ordinary sandwiches. He looked pretty old. Probably a pensioner, but now at least he could have some hot sandwiches at the flick of a switch. One thing was evident. This new addition to his possessions had been achieved simply and without embarrassment, without any cost. Nothing to pay. At last I'd found a real way to help those less lucky than myself, and of course I'd got rid of things I didn't need clothes and all manner of useful things could all be redistributed without that terrible humbling moment where those in society with can officially patronise and make feel small those unfortunate enough to be without. It always seems an accidental condition that unintentionally those kind enough to try and help the less well-off almost certainly take a little dignity in return for whatever is on offer. But my wall offered no stigma. It sat a silent witness, a gift-bearing pile of bricks with one single agenda. A gift wall, a constant act of random kindness. Nothing would ever be on offer that was not of use and in good condition. I thought that important and a vision of various people all pulling on jackets and jumpers and looking at themselves with delight in mirrors across the local area, filled my mind. Small, sparse kitchens now gleamed with new appliances, and all because of a wall. That next afternoon, I wandered down the local high street and I counted three people rattling boxes, and I thought of the tortuous journey that each penny had to make before it reached the figures pictured on the collector's badges and posters. Ducking behind a slow-moving old lady, I successfully blocked the view of a happy-looking young girl who was chanting, Sick children, sick children, like some bizarre mantra. And as I returned home, it struck me again that once people got used to seeing things on the wall, they might even make regular trips to see what was available. Hmm... This would remove the chance that the items would reach a wide range of recipients. So I began to let a few days, here and there, pass between me putting things out. One evening, I was gazing round the room, looking for anything I was ready to replace, because I'd lost count of the things I'd now given away. And I made a mental note about a small side table in the dining room that had seen better days. And then... I went to bed. All that next morning I had meetings in town and the wall didn't enter my mind until I returned home much later that evening. And I went to walk to my front door when it struck me. There was a huge hole out the front of the house. The gift wall had gone. Someone had taken it. yup that actually really happened and now the next one and i know it's a fiction story number two in our collection today but again this one's taken from something that actually really happened and it's called the shouter he kept shouting and a bus driver shook his head and tutted while his passengers dutifully looked into the shop windows avoiding the twitching figure noisily striding up and down the pavement, his arms flailing. The sunshine made me squint, and I crossed the road a good fifty yards in front of him, avoiding catching his eyes. Eventually, a small police car drifted to a stop, and a burly young PC got out, comically drawing himself up to his full height, the car toy-like against his size silence fell. And I stopped and watched as the noisy man hung his head and after listening intently to the young policeman, he suddenly strode off as if he'd received urgent news, a galvanised, ragged figure proclaiming his otherness, lost in the neat surroundings. The few distant spectators "'lounged back in their chairs outside the coffee shop. "'Nothing to see, one mouth through the window "'to a ghost shadow in the dark interior. "'The weather was on the turn, and it had been getting warmer, "'so I'd taken to reading my evening paper "'sitting in the sunny bay window of my flat. "'From my third-floor eyrie, I could lean out "'and clearly see the top of my street, "'as it joined the busier high-road,' "'that ran along its narrow mouth. "'Often I would hear the sounds of thumping car stereos below in the street "'as cars and taxis dropped off and picked up my neighbours and their neighbours too. "'It was city life. "'I sipped my tea and I murmured appreciatively. "'Just like my first cup of tea in the morning "'or crossing out important dates on the calendar pinned to the kitchen notice board,' My evening tea and paper ritual never changed. 5.30, tea and the evening standard. And for me, these simple regular habits were like the tent poles of my life. Habits, rituals, they govern our every waking moment. Without mine, I always felt vaguely incomplete, somehow cheated of my basic comfort, and to put it plainly, thrown off of whack. I must admit, thinking about some of my habits, well, they're pretty rigid. Out the station at five, pick up spare milk if needed, swing by my newsagent, get a magazine, pick up the free evening standard, keys and home. Jacket off, case down, shoes off, kettle on, TV on, check answer machine, make tea, sit down. Read paper. It was just me, a creature of habit or ritual, if you will, a regular person, I like to think, with a place for everything and everything in its place. That Monday was no different. The sun had begun to lose its heat, but the breeze was still pleasant, and I suddenly noted with pleasure that I'd made a really good cup of tea, better than ooh, at least the last ten or so, and then the shouting began. It was constant and loud, echoing between the houses, and as I craned my head around the gently moving curtain, I saw him, head thrown back, arms beginning their frenzied flailing. The shouter. I don't quite remember when it was that I started to refer to him as such. I think it was to my news agent once, when I was buying the paper and the poor man turned up regular as clockwork and ranted his way down our high street every day for it seemed like the past six months. But from then on, my nickname for him passed into my common parlance. I'd found myself mentioning him in conversation. Friends would ask had I heard him lately. And often at work, I would compare errant colleagues to him. And once as a joke... I told a story about him. I'd gone to Oxford Street, shoes to buy or something. And there he was, the shouter, stiffly frozen outside a fast food restaurant. Angry voice raised, his straining neck muscles reflected in the plate glass. It seemed strange to see him away from his usual haunt. And when I got back to my office, I told my colleagues of my surprise at seeing him away from his usual spot outside the newsagent, the dry cleaner and the bank... And then I went on to venture what I thought was an amusing theory that perhaps the man who normally went mad there was off sick and that loony central control had got in the shelter as a temporary replacement. We all laughed together. But as I went back into my office, I suddenly felt a sense of guilt. Okay, make a joke, fine but to get a laugh at the expense of the shouter's tortured mind. It troubled me, and shame ran through my mind, and chastened, I picked up my ringing phone, and guiltily I pushed him from my thoughts. Right then, I sipped my tea, as his voice rang through the cool evening air. He kept on. I briefly put my paper down and listened. It, it wasn't as if you could clearly make out distinguishable phrases or sentences. It was short and fierce, the odd swear word puncturing the flow. It was staccato, machine gun like. Then I couldn't see him from where I sat. He was just moving out of sight around the corner, probably pacing back and forth along his usual regular tiny route. It was strange. He would pace up and down the length of about five shops agitatedly walking between the bank and the newsagent and the dry cleaner, his voice rising in pitch. But then, in volume, it suddenly snapped off as if a switch had been flicked. I peered out again and he shuffled back into view. His other walk, a strange cat-like movement that silently took him beyond my line of sight. But the piece was a Blessed relief. Back to the film reviews and then dinner. Order. Things back in place. It must have been about a week later when it happened. I'd taken a break from work and I'd visited a friend in Watford when a fit of indulgence I'd spent far too much on a leather jacket. It just seemed a thing to do. Happily, I'm self-employed, a sort of consultant, music and media mainly. I like it because it gives me the flexibility to work my own hours. But sometimes, like all one-man band businesses, I overstretch myself. Sadly, I'm not as young as I once was. It was my 60th birthday, only the last year. But then I remembered that a few years back, I'd basically worked myself into collapsing from exhaustion. So now I'm only too aware of the danger signs, and stress can creep up on you all too easily. So it was that that indulgent day out, my jacket, my lunch, and the shopping, it was a signal to myself to take it easy. When I got back late that afternoon, the phone didn't stop, it was mad. But my short break had done me the power of good, and I felt fine, lots of energy. And plus the plans for a very unusual new project, which really appealed to me, were really coming together well. I poured another cup of tea and then to my annoyance I realised I'd virtually run out of milk. The dribble in the bottom of the carton was never going to be enough for that evening's guests and myself. So I decided to nip out on a quick shopping expedition. And tugging on my jacket I suddenly felt energetic and I leapt down the stairs two at a time and I fell into the street barely pausing to adjust my sunglasses and catch my breath. Now the shop I use is at the top of the road. It's about a 100 yards past the pub. And there's a nearer shop, for no discernible reason to me, they seem to add about 20 pence to every item you buy. Apparently it's the price you have to pay for convenience, for them being near. And for the saving I walk, it's only 20 pence, but it's probably that odd feeling of being ripped off more than the saving, if I'm honest. And as I reached the top of the road, the shouter started and I automatically froze and then I crossed over. I avoided his regular little patch up from the bank, a thing I always did. To be honest, he made me feel uncomfortable. He wasn't like the little bundles of sleeping bags and dogs on the embankment, passive and pitiable, easily assuaged with a handful of change, he almost demanded attention. And occasionally I'd glance towards him as I crossed further down the street, but he always seemed on the edge of looking towards me. So I'd suddenly feign interest in the shop window and hurry by. I I don't know what it was. It was maybe the venom in his shouting, his lunging hands as he fought with imaginary foes. But whatever the reason... I avoided him. It seemed politic. He lived in his world of shadows, and I in mine of light. And there was no link, no common ground, no connection. The sun was still bright, and I felt comfortably anonymous behind my dark glasses, and furtively I turned and I watched him as he almost walked with me in parallel, and we made our way along the road. He always wore a grubby white two-piece suit, only just grubby though, and I'd often wondered where he came from each day. It seemed logical that it was a home or a daycare centre because from time to time he would reappear with a haircut and a trimmed beard, his sun-darkened skin scrubbed, his suit clean, semi-pressed, but the rest of the time he appeared unwashed. A greasy mat of thousand long hair, a wild beard, unkempt. Now his exact age was a mystery. He could have been 30 or a thousand. He seemed almost ageless. But the main thing that struck me about him was his eyes. They were a piercing brown color, and even through my dark glasses, they seemed to catch the light. "'as he mirrored my journey down the road. "'They were thrown into sharp relief "'by his tan, dirt-smeared skin and dark beard. "'But they almost shone, as if lit from within, "'as he wildly stared in confusion at things invisible to me. "'Almost on cue, a police car pulled up, "'and shaking his head a burly sergeant emerged "'and trotted after him, catching him, as the shouter wheeled gracefully round on his regular set path. Silence fell. Quiet words were exchanged, and the shouter snapped into his usual sudden urgent stride, disappearing down the road, leaving the sergeant to grin at the dry cleaner, who was now leaning in his doorway. I went to the shop, and I bought my milk, as well as a packet of marshmallow tea cakes, the sweet smell, for some odd reason, that reminds me of my late mother. And pausing only to skirt a Range Rover as it precariously tried to squeeze into a very small parking space, I twisted my carrier bag shut and I crossed the road. I hadn't gone more than ten yards or so when a sudden loud shriek made me turn round and there, on the corner by the library, stood the shouter, head bowed, his way barred by a large woman, and she was standing in front of him, calling out to the street in general, making some point about him being no better than an animal, and her companion, another large woman, stood beside her, nodding vigorous approval as an untidy knot of small children clung to her skirt. Suddenly, one of the women lunged at him, and I clearly heard her hand connect with his face, a muted sort of slap, and his head rocked back, as her face, a flushed red circle, bobbed near his grime-smeared white chest. And he just stood there, immobile, while they tugged and pulled at him. And I began walking towards them, aware as I did of others moving alongside me. what he do?' ventured a fat young man in a tight leather jacket. He didn't touch the kids, did he? He stood theatrically, a fist outstretched, looking around him for approval. I love you, son. And he spat at the shouter, who looked to all the world as if he was pinned to a post. His body slumped, his skinny frame swaying scarecrow-like on an invisible breeze. The large red-faced woman folded her arms contemptuously, He looked at me, she breathed in sharply. We was walking by him and he looked right down my dress. And she moved her head, catching eyes, but her sense of outrage was lost on us. The fat boy looked disappointed and shrugged, and she looked at me imploringly. Well, how would you feel? And I heard myself trying to sound reasonable, saying calming things. But before I could finish, the shouter slowly lifted his head up and her eyes suddenly locked. My breath caught in my chest and I remembered the only other time I'd ever looked into eyes like that before and I clutched my milk and I fell back 20 years. It was during my childhood, Scouts... 10 years old, 12, 14, endless camping trips, sunny, foggy, raining. But Sundays always meant a visit to the nearest church to fight the good fight. We were Christians, we were told, but I didn't feel any different for it. And the churches we visited always smelled of damp to me, a musty, woody, old, empty, dead smell. And there was always a great big brass eagle, that the vicar read his great Bible from. And as he spoke, I tried to feign concentration while staring up at the long stained-glass windows, just trying to catch a glimpse of the daylight outside through the only splash of colour in those dead, empty places. Great wheels and slashes of colour bearing images of drama and dread. But there was one image that always caught me the pale man on the cross. Shimmering crimson red drops hung from his hands and feet like sparkling rubies on a silk sheet and his eyes were always raised to the sky. Great pools of brown, aching, desperate, alone. Eyes that knew the pain of the world, the eyes of the shouter, The large woman slapped him again, and his gaze was wrenched from mine as his head jerked back. And suddenly, swiftly pushing from behind me and past the fat boy, the police sergeant stepped between them, his voice angry now. "Okay, that's quite enough of that. Nothing to see here. Everyone just move along. Off you go, the lot of you. And tutting loudly, he put a meaty hand on the shouter's shoulder and tugged him closer. Now, what did I just tell you? His voice dropped to a gentle whisper and carefully he led the shouter over to a nearby bench. After a minute or two, the shouter stood up and broke into his familiar bustling walk away down the roads towards the station, followed by the sergeant. I crossed over to avoid him. I left him there. He was being taken care of. What could I do? So I went home. But the picture from my childhood was fixed in my head. Imagine, to be trapped on that cold window, eternally locked into that single, dreadful moment, deserted and waiting for a merciful release. Helpless and calling into the silence, unsure of the final destination, trapped in a world between worlds the face his lips racked with pain as he tries to form the words help me help me imagine to be so lost and alone with no one to see your pain I can hear him calling out now but to my shame I'll always cross over. Well, as usual, it's that point where we'd normally jabber on about writing. But as we say now in this new series, we ask people to maybe pop across to TikTok, look at the videos. We think that's going to be a bit more informative instead of me gabbling on for a couple of minutes and taking your time. And more importantly, getting in the way of the third story. Now the shouter, it's a bit dark. We know that. So we're going to end on today's story And this is called Mr. Frobisher. And if it doesn't make you go, ah, we won't have done our job. Mr. Frobisher pulled on his left riding boot. It was hot in the small changing room. and Behind him, one of the mothers placed his tea on the shelf, children running around in the corridor outside. The performance would start soon, and he looked at himself in the mirror, his costume, his white peasant smock, its brightly embroidered arms and collar, his white riding breeches with a red stripe along the leg, his wide leather belt, his polished black riding boots. An accordion sounded from the corridor and he shivered. He loved that sound. It had been his Katya. She'd been the one. It was her Hungarian heritage, she said, the folk dances of her people. They'd met at college, accountancy. She'd come over on a student exchange programme. He sighed to himself that jet black long hair and green eyes they'd captivated him that had been 65 years ago god. she'd encouraged him sewn his smocks taught him the dances and now he fingered the cotton material god he missed her so much It'd been five years now since he'd lost her cancer mercifully been quick He lifted his leg and flexed it experimentally. His arthritis, thankfully, not an issue today. His 70 plus years not holding him back, he'd never let that happen. Gregor, the musical director, walked in and waved to him from the doorway. It was time, he said. It was sunny outside, and the small park area was half full. A good turnout for a Sunday, he felt. And slowly he walked out onto the wide stage platform, and he tapped the microphone. Good afternoon, everybody. His voice boomed slightly, a tiny bit of feedback, and the people in the rows of deck chairs now sat up and started smiling. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all so much for coming. He glanced to his left. An ice cream van had pulled up, and a small queue had started forming. My name is Barry Frobisher and I'm the chairman of the Anglo-British-Hungarian Folk Dance Society. A small ripple of applause greeted that and he bowed his head and continued. Keeping these vibrant cultural customs alive is very important I'm sure you'll agree and I'd like to thank the Victoria Park Society for giving us and the children this lovely stage today. So If you'd like to find out more about us, our work and our dancing, or even join, you're all very welcome. At this, another wave of applause drifted in the air. He looked out. The first five rows were full of families, mostly the parents from the children's dance section, proudly sitting there, all holding camera phones up, and he now bowed slightly. Now, our first dance is from the seniors... Unlike many of the dances today, it is a harvest dance. It comes from an area known as the North Great Plain Region in the county of Hajubiá. His pronunciation was in perfect Hungarian and someone cheered and clapped. Thank you. And this dance signals the end of the work in the fields. He smiled. For when the work is done, he paused dramatically. It is time to dance! And now his voice rose in the yell Deja Tancalere! And he clapped his hand above his head. And the crowd now burst into applause, some cheering along to his call. Suddenly, music blared from the speakers, and three of the musicians walked out from the wings accordions, fiddles, tambourines. And a small boy in a similar cotton embroidered peasant shirt, wearing a hat with a feather, ran onto the stage. He bowed and took the microphone from Mr Frobisher, another ripple of applause, and then he dashed off, slightly skidding in his desire to get off the stage, the floor slightly slippery, and the crowd laughed good-naturedly. Now, from behind the curtain, five elderly people appeared, four ladies and one man, the ladies' outfits bright and colourful, wide swirling skirts in reds and greens, brightly embroidered peasant tops with lace sleeves, head coverings trailing ribbons and they formed a circle as the music began to start. Now a man on the tambourine began counting down one two three four and the dance began and Mr Frobisher began to shout his Hungarian perfect and round they spun hands in the air and they clapped and turned and bowed all rather stiffly and Mr Frobisher started to concentrate, counting in his head. Of course he knew the steps. He'd had years of practice. Five to the left, five to the right. And now he grinned at Piotr, his friend. Piotr was the real thing, Hungarian. And just like Mr. Frobisher, a lover of the dance. Admittedly, they all moved a bit slowly, not quite keeping time with the music, but their average age was rather close to 80, Mr. Frobisher being the oldest at 78. Miss Nagy just two years younger and still only just recovering from a hip operation. She was an amazing woman, energetic, unstoppable and now the music rose and the crowd clapped and children started to sing. Most in the audience began to stand up as the music now picked up speed and Mr Frobisher smiled to his group. Oh, His belt felt a bit tight and he thought of his Katya What would she think of his tummy? He just didn't cook very well. She'd always taken such good care of him. Now it's more ready meals. Round he spun, thinking of the house, feeling so empty without her, and he glanced at the stitching on his sleeve, her fine needlework. Basildon, England. Debrecen, Hungary. Their respective hometowns. She'd been so proud. But she loved him, she said. He was the only country she needed. That's what she told him on their wedding night. And then the years had passed, and she taught him the dances, helped him set the society up. He didn't know why, but he loved to dance, and he couldn't explain the joy he felt. But right then, it wasn't joy he was feeling. His breath came a little bit tighter. Carty thought, I need to lose a few pounds. Whew, this is a get hard work. Oh, His ageing limbs creaking now as he almost whirled and spun. No pain, no gain, he thought. And then the music suddenly changed again. And now they paused and bowed to the audience. From somewhere in the distance, a trumpet and a cymbal crashed. One, two, one, two. And everyone smiling, the seniors now stepped to the left, Then to the right, all arms now outstretched, their faces focused and smiling. Mr Frobisher blew the whistle around his neck, and suddenly a gaggle of tiny girls swept onto the stage, impossibly cute, the under-sevens all fiercely concentrating, their little dresses and beribboned hair, the result of hours of proud mother's work. And they moved like little ducks, trailing after each other, all holding hands, and a ripple of applause ran through the crowd again, parents clapping loudly, cheering. The little ones were led by two of the older girls, and then five small boys appeared, dressed in matching black outfits, velvet jackets, dark braiding and tassels, silver buckle boots, and little hats with a jaunty feather in, and they hopped and jumped and skipped, two of them whirling and jumping around the girls, their faces happy and content. It was charming and the music was jaunty and now Mr Frobisher and his elderly colleagues formed an arch and the tiny children began to skip one by one under their upraised arms one little girl waving and shouting mama mama her expression of sheer delight someone whistled someone cheered voices now raised in appreciation and everyone in the small crowd began to clap Mr. Frobisher could see three of the children were in danger of banging into each other, and he jinked across, keeping in time with the music. One, two, and one, one, two, and one, one, two, and he reached down and gently untangled them. One of them giggled, and now another looked to be getting dangerously close to the edge of the stage. Off he skipped again, and bending low, he directed her back to the center of the dance, smiling, shooing her into the arms of one of the other girls. Oh, one, two, and one, one, two, and one, one, two. He suddenly felt a second wind. Excellent, his energy level rising and he turned to rejoin the group and the music got louder and now he yelled in Hungarian again with people in the audience yelling back and he clapped and they clapped. It was wonderful, a fiddle soaring, the tune changing again, a new routine. He wanted to spin round, spin around and spin around and turn and turn and turn and turn when without warning his ankle turned underneath him and suddenly he felt his leg buckle. Off balance now he fell, heavily, helplessly, his head banging the wooden floor, and then there was darkness. Someone was laughing, and Mr Frobisher ached all over. Ow! Ah. His head. And he kept his eyes closed. He had to get up now. The performance, the performance. Slowly does it, he felt, and he groaned and turned. Oh! He was now flat on his back. Silly old fool, he'd fallen. What had he been thinking? He really wasn't that young anymore. The damn slippery stage, like the little boy nearly fell over on. Right, he felt. Upsy daisy. And he put his hands out behind him, ready to get to his feet. His palms touched earth, cool and moist. And his eyes flew open. What? two little girls in colourful smocks dashed past him and he looked around. He was sitting, his back now against a wall and in front of him a meadow, green and flower-filled and it stretched away into the distance. And there, standing in front of him, was Katya, smiling, her jet-black hair ribbon-filled, her white dress embroidered and vibrant, her green eyes sparkling. And she smiled and held out her hand. Come, my love, the harvest is in. There is no time to sleep. And she laughed, the sound running through him, gladdening his heart. And she blew him a kiss. Deja, Tansellini, my love, it is time to dance. Well, we hope that one did make you go on. Anyway, it's time for us to leave you with our normal time to say goodbye and today we hope the world is letting you win today. Bye now.